Hello, and welcome to episode 52 of the Movie Marathoners podcast. I'm your host, Mati, and joining me today is James from Munson's at the Movies. Thanks for joining me, James. How's it going? Mati, thanks for having me. It's going well. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, thank you so much for joining me. I'm really excited to talk about this movie, and uh, we just met each other two minutes ago, but you seem like a great guy, so this should be a good conversation. Well, I'm glad uh, I'm glad I was able to fool you that quickly. <laughs> So this week, we will be discussing the film The King of Staten Island, which was released to VOD services on June 12th. So we're a little bit behind the curve there, but I mean, I had to cover Defy Bloods and of course the hit film Artemis Fowl. So King of Staten Island fell to the wayside for a couple weeks. Can already tell you that The King of Staten Island is definitely better than one of those movies. Uh, You can probably guess which one. Yeah, that's not a very high bar to uh, cross. (laughs) I I listened to your reviews and I... uh... You steered me away from ever wanting to watch Artemis Fowl. I'm glad. I'm glad. Uh, As usual, we'll warm up with a spoiler-free review of the film, and then we'll run into spoiler territory where we can talk freely about the film. And lastly, as always, we'll finish with our point two section where we discuss what else we've been watching. So first, let's read a synopsis of The King of Staten Island. Scott has been a case of arrested development since his firefighter dad died. He spends his days smoking weed and dreaming of being a tattoo artist until events force him to grapple with his grief and take his first steps forward in life. The King of Staten Island stars Pete Davidson, Marissa Tomei, and Bill Burr. It is written by Judd Apatow, Pete Davidson, and Dave Sirius. And it is, of course, directed by Judd Apatow. I like your tattoos. What are those numbers on your arm? Oh, that's uh, the date my dad died. He was a fireman. Died in a fire 17 years ago. Oh my god, I'm so sorry. Don't be. It's fine. Knock, knock. Who's there? Not your dad. (laughs) You can't focus on Scott anymore, honey. He's 24 years old, Marjorie. Let that fucking bird fly, please. Don't worry, Mom. I know your daughter got smart and went to college and abandoned us. But I'm still here. I'm going to be here forever. So, James, let's just hop straight into this. Uh, What did you think of The King of Staten Island? I was pleasantly surprised. Um, It was not what I thought I was going to get from Judd Apatow and Pete Davidson. I'd seen Pete Davidson's uh, comedy before, so I know he has a very dark sense of humor uh, and he's very self-reflective. However, this movie is not kind of what I thought it would be on a surface. There's a lot of deeper levels to it, and it's way more heartfelt than I I guess I'm used to from Judd Apatow. Um, And so I was intrigued. Uh, I will kind of save it as we get a little bit more into it, but I thought it could have been actually more heartfelt. I thought there could have been more of an emotional payoff to it. And I think that's what frustrated me the most. I enjoyed the film, but I felt like there could have been a deeper meaning, uh, deeper emotional gripping to it. It was a little scattered all over the place. Yeah, I agree with a lot of what you said. Um, I don't know what I was expecting from the film because I, you know, I didn't watch any trailers or anything and I'll watch anything that was going to be in theaters at this point. But a lot of, I agree with you, a lot of Judd Apatow films kind of tend to have a, um, not necessarily that it's, it doesn't have heart, but it, it tends to be a little more frivolous and more focusing on funny as opposed to drama. And I found mm-hmm. that this film was surprisingly layered in what it's trying to say and a lot more um, nuanced in the drama with a little bit of funny on top. Yeah, I think that's um, and that's probably maybe more so due towards how Pete is as a comedian. Um, if you've ever seen his stand up, he punches you right in the face with some emotional gut punches and then makes a joke about it to like bring some levity to the situation. (laughs) And that is very prominent in this movie, which uh, is sort of about his life in that there are moments where you're like, Oh, that's not that funny of a situation. And then there are jokes that happen within there. Yeah. This is clearly a very personal story for him. You know, he wrote it. So it's somewhat autobiographical. I believe he is from Staten Island uh, his father did die. He was a firefighter. He's actually a firefighter in 9-11, uh, which mm-hmm. is not a part of this movie. But um, a lot of those things are present in this film. What are your thoughts on his uh, performance in general? I actually, I thought it was very good. I thought he, you know, showing how well he uses humor kind of as a defense mechanism mm-hmm. and how he's not someone that you fully root for the entire time. He's someone that you're like, like, I understand why he's not doing great, but like, that can't be this crutch that you use for your whole life. I thought he portrayed that really well. 
And that was something that I found intriguing, probably because it's so close to his actual life. I think it's fair to assume that that's probably how he's acting, how his normal life is, um, in that he has used humor as kind of a defense mechanism. Yeah. Have you seen his other film that came out uh, a couple months ago called uh, Big Time Adolescence? No, actually, I'm not. Okay, so uh, that's a film. It's on Hulu. Uh, I I did a review of that as well. Um, He plays a similar character to uh, Scott in that movie. He plays a character named Zeke. And I do think that both of them, they're, they're actually surprisingly different characters. I was surprised at how different they were. And I think that this Scott character is probably a little more like uh, Pete actually is, but they do both kind of seem like they are, you know, kind of just different shades of a very similar character. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm wondering, because there's there's all this talk about Pete Davidson is in the Judd Apatow movie. Is he, can he be a a big movie star? And I don't, um, I agree with you. I think that the performance is really good. And there's a couple scenes in particular that I think are excellent. But I wonder if um, he's able to actually play somebody who's different than what he is as an actual person. Yeah, I, that's why it's hard to critique, right? Because yeah. I think this is so close to who he is as a person. And without having seen that film, I know I'd like to see him try uh, other roles, maybe that are different from this to see if he has that ability. But when you know, you're first getting your first major movie roles and you're cast as something that's very close to who you personally are, it's easy. It not easy. It's more likely you'll shine in those roles. So I am not confident either that he can play something outside of that. But I'd be interested to see him try. Yeah, for sure. I think this is a. I, I mean, it's you know a, a stepping stone. So whether there's more stepping stones to come, I think this is good promise. Um, in this film, particularly, he has kind of a uh, emotionless affect that I think is very true in how he portrays himself on SNL and in his standup mm-hmm. and everything like that. But I was surprised in this film how he was able to kind of shade the affects a little differently so that even though he kind of does have, you know, he he doesn't ever break down or cry or anything in this movie. But you can tell that there are scenes where he is sad or scenes where he is genuinely scared. Um, The scene where he watches firemen go into a burning building in particular really struck Mm -hmm. out to me as being able to see the concern on his face and then that making the film feel like it has real emotional weight to it. So I was impressed by that. Yeah, I agree. I think that's a very good, sometimes a very good way to portray people dealing with untreated depression. And a lot of times that doesn't happen in films. You have kind of the stereotypical depiction of depression where it's someone who's sad and they're on a couch and woe is me. And that's not necessarily accurate. And I appreciate the kind of emotionlessness of that, where it is, I am not feeling anything despite everyone being like, hey, you need to get your life together. He's like, yeah, I know, but I'm not. And that is hard for family members to deal with. And I thought that was portrayed very well. Yeah. And that does kind of speak to a part of this film that I thought was particularly fascinating in that it's a very realistic film in the way that it handles depression and sort of uh, growth as a human being. Like if you look at uh, Pete Davidson's character at the beginning of the film and at the end of the film, there's really not a huge emotional change or, you know, there's there's nothing really in this film that kind of catalyzes some massive change. It's more of a very progress, uh, very slowly progressing yeah. change, and it feels very realistic. But because of that, I also think that the film does, like you said, um, I don't remember the exact word you'd use, but it to me, it feels almost a little aimless sometimes where yes. um, it's not always, uh, there's not a ton of energy to the film. Yeah, it was. So in like the, maybe it's on purpose. It's hard to mm-hmm. fully grasp, but it, in the first, you know, third of the film, you don't exactly know where it's going. And it's like setting kind of the, structure it's more character development and you're starting to grasp like all right so this scott character is like clearly going through some things that he are not being acknowledged by him but are being acknowledged by others and you don't really know where the arc of the story is going in the first third and so that part's a little confusing for the viewer and you get a better idea as it as it progresses so in the middle and the end there it is a little more aimed towards how he can grow. But in the beginning, you're just like, all right, I mean, there's some funny scenes. He clearly is dealing with some issues. 
but like, what are we talking about? Like, what is, what is the point of knowing this about him yet? Cause you're not fully sure what's happening. Yeah. It's sort of like, what's the plot? And right. really there's not too much of a plot. Um, there's not like, like in a lot of these Apatow films that kind of deal with um, somebody who's in Arrested Development. I think that's a pretty common thing in Apatow films, but yes. there's usually some sort of catalyst. Like in Knocked Up, there is, uh, you know, Seth Rogen gets Catherine Heigl knocked right, up. Right, right. But in this one, there's not really anything other than the kind of introduction of Bill Burr into Marissa Tomei's life. But it does feel a little, it's definitely purposeful, but it definitely does give the film a little bit of a, okay, where are we going here? And I think that's especially true because the film is 136 minutes. Yeah, that's, I mean, one of the things that, it's one of my least favorite things. You could tell me a movie is the greatest movie of all time. And then if you tell me that it feels a little long, I'm immediately turned off from seeing it. <laughs> it is instantaneously like, all right. Like if you didn't tell me that I would go into it and I wouldn't care, but it, it's a mental block I have when it comes to movie length that if there are scenes that are unnecessary in there and it make it that long, like my ADD won't allow me to be, you know, fully attentive uh, for that long and enjoy it, even if it's a great movie. So when like Wolf of Wall Street came out, people were giving it such high reviews, but they were saying, oh, it's a little long. It's like, I never want to see that movie now. Just because it's that long, <laughs> I will I will watch it at home on my couch. You must not watch many Scorsese movies then, because those things are long. I mean, so I, and again, I love Martin Scorsese right. movies, but that is one of the turn, like when, um, the Irishman was coming out and everyone was talking about it being three hours. I was like, Oh my God, is he serious with this? Like, do we need three hours of a movie? This is too much. Yeah, I completely agree. That was, I mean, you know, I, I at the same time, I like love Endgame, and I think that it uses its three hours fantastically mm -hmm. there. Uh, for this film, do you think that it deserves that hour 36 minute uh, or no, 136 minutes. So over two hour runtime or do you think that there are parts that can be kind of trimmed down i think there are parts that can be trimmed down i think when we get into spoilers there are some scenes that while entertaining they didn't progress the plot at all or didn't really develop the character as much as maybe they thought they were when they included the scene um and it could have been uh left out yeah i agree with you and i think i know which scenes you're talking about we'll see if i have the same thoughts on those scenes but before we do that uh, before we hop into spoilers, I just want to ask a question about, you know, it kind of feels almost a little like beating a dead horse at this point, as we've been in quarantine for several, several months at this point. But this is a film that was supposed to be in theaters. It um, came on VOD and uh, we had to watch it at home for 1999 was at least the price point that I was given. Do you think that this film is worth that 1999 price point? And uh, would you have seen this in the theater? So I think there's those two questions, um, although they're kind of tied together here, I think they're interesting when you separate them because yeah. when it goes to 1999, um, what myself and my wife have been watching like throughout quarantine, like we've been renting movies around the $5 price range. And when it's above that, we're like, uh, I don't know, like maybe it's too <laughs> much. However, I love going to theaters and it's something I sorely miss throughout this pandemic. And without a question, I would have paid more than 1999 to see this in theaters. Mm -hmm. So it is more of like a philosophical question as if that experience is worth 1999, I would absolutely pay 20 bucks to go to a movie theater and enjoy myself at the moment. Uh, but at home, uh, I, I could sell myself because most of the times when you go to a theaters, it's like $60 for two people. However, at home, it's really hard to justify the 1999, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think, you know, if this film came out for 1999 at a time when there was movie theaters just that you could go to, uh, no way would I spend 1999 no. for that movie. So it's, it's going to be really interesting to see what happens with the premium VOD when theaters hopefully eventually open back up again. But I mean, even before quarantine, I don't think I would ever rent a movie for like $5.99 or whatever. I would just find something on Netflix. Um, True. So, but now I will gladly rent, you know, something that I just want to watch, uh, whether it's a Spike Lee movie before to fly bloods or whatever. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I mean, I, I don't think that this film feels necessarily like it's mandatory viewing, but it certainly does feel cinematic enough that, if you want something new that feels like 
a movie that you would see in the theaters, this is definitely it. Yeah, I think if this was a different time, you're right. There's just no way I would justify it. But I think I'm so starved for content at the moment yeah. <laughs> that a new movie I'm excited about, I would gladly pay that amount. Like, you know, Tenant keeps getting pushed back. If they were to say Tenant's online for $20, I'd be like, absolutely, no brainer. Um, yeah. But I just don't see that happening. Yeah, they definitely won't be doing that. But hopefully that does eventually come out at a safe time. Um so let, why don't we just hop into spoilers here? Before we do that, can you just summarize your thoughts and give a score out of 10 for The King of Staten Island? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I appreciate how it, it approached a deep topic that I don't think is uh, honestly represented that much in movies when it has to do with dealing with depression and especially the loss of a parent. Like most Apatow movies, there is a arrested development, I like the term you used here, and it, and it plays well and it's funny. Um, however, it is a little long and that is hard for me to get over. Uh, and I don't feel it had the emotional payoff that I was, I wanted it mm. to have or that it could have had. So on a scale from one to 10, I, I actually, I'll do, I did a, a zero to 100. And so I, I gave it a 78. I felt like if it, if it had a larger emotional payoff, I could have said it was a really good movie. Um, but instead I said it was a, it was a good movie. It was okay. Yeah, I'll I'll mirror that a lot. Uh, I I definitely enjoyed watching the film, and um, you know I think even though the film is long, it is good that uh, it it doesn't feel like a very cynical or nihilistic film. Um, I think going into this movie, I thought it was going to be a bit more grungy and kind of negative outlook on life. And this film is deceptively sweet. There's a lot of heart mm-hmm. in it. It's a very personal story and. It's not personal from the point of, God, my life sucks. It's our, um, wow, I'm not going to get anything done because of this depression or anything. It, it is about relationships and how those relationships change and opening yourself up to new relationships. And that message makes the movie very palatable. It makes it really mm-hmm. enjoyable to watch. And the other part that we haven't talked about, which maybe we'll get into in spoilers, is a lot of these side characters are also really good, um, both from a performance level, but also just from nuanced and uh realistic characters that i like actually want to see have like i want to see the best things happen for them absolutely so i think that's what makes this movie really great but you know again it it is a little slow um maybe even by nature it is a bit meandery so there certainly is that um and i agree with you at the end the emotional payoff is a bit confusing where they decide to focus that and i think that's just because of what they decided to focus on for the rest of the film, but we'll hop straight into that uh, in spoilers. So um, I'm going to give this an eight out of 10, just right, right along with you. Mm-hmm. So with that, let's go ahead and hop into spoilers. Uh, spoilers for the King of Staten Island starting now. That's my secret, cat. I'm always angry. So let's start at the end then for spoilers. Uh, I think what you're talking about, the emotional payoff, is kind of this, uh, it sort of frames the emotional payoff of this film as the new realization that Scott is actually in love with Kelsey and he wants to kind of get back together with her. Is that correct? Yes, it was. I I felt the kind of buildup with his relationship with Bill Burr and, you know, then him and his mom and Bill kind of have that moment together And then as he's going to, I kind of presumed it was like a job interview when Bill was driving him there. And he's like, all right, just, you know, be confident. And it ended up being him speaking with uh, Bell Pally's character. And I didn't see that coming. I was like, all right, well, her, their relationship was part of the story throughout, but I didn't know that's where the payoff would be. And so I was a little confused there at the end. I'm glad it happened, but it, it didn't feel as large of a payoff as the movie was building towards. Yeah, that makes sense to me, too. I, I think that I mean, I agree with you when when he pulled up to the car, I was like, oh, where's he going? Probably a job interview or something like I thought maybe he was going to take a test to be a firefighter or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is him kind of just going with Kelsey to her interview in the city, which I think is actually a very sweet sentiment. Um, and that part does work. It, but it is weird that that is what the movie kind of ends on. And I think the reason for that is that while I do think that they're, you know, good enough together, 
um, their relationship does not feel like the central relationship of the film. And it's not built up quite well enough throughout the film for it to warrant that he says that he loves her and everything like that. Yeah. And that's actually her entire character throughout the film. You're like, wow, she's a good person who really wants to support this guy and Mm -hmm. really cares about this guy. And he just doesn't see it. But I felt like that could have been a, you know, a side kind of emotional payoff where it's like, he also got the girl who's been there the whole time. Cause I felt like the, the bigger issue in this was his relationship with his mother, which had a little bit of a payoff there. Um, and I feel like when they were watching TV and they finally spoke about his father passing and um, they are explaining how he misses him and whatnot, but it was very subtle. It was casual. And there wasn't as much as like a relief. Like I could finally exhale after all what I've watched. <laughs> yeah. And it certainly does speak to the realism of the film for there not to be this kind of right. like, I think it may have been a little bit ridiculous if he had kind of broken down and done an Oscar cry uh, to Marissa Tomei in right. that scene. But yeah, I mean, that definitely is the more interesting kind of wrap up of the emotional arc. So it's a, it, it is weird to me that he does end with this uh, relationship with Kelsey. But I do think that the two of them kissing on the Staten Island Ferry is the perfect representation of the spirit of this film. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's sweet, but like a little janky. They're still kissing on a really gross ferry. But um, And she's <laughs> studying for a test for a job, and like, it's not that romantic of a scene. Yeah. <laughs> um, so let's talk a little bit about the scenes that you think could have been dropped. Um, I have a couple, but... Which one do you, uh, which ones are you specifically talking about? So there were some scenes that I thought were funny that I just felt like were unnecessary. One of them was the basketball scene uh, with the security guard where they walk and eventually they get to the beach where they're giving the tattoo to the, the little boy, which is part of the plot and necessary. Mm-hmm. But the basketball scene, I didn't feel like was necessary. Um, same with the robbery scene where... I get the idea that, you know, he's depressed. And so now he is doing something, he's acting out again and he is, you know, self-harm and self-sabotage, but it didn't really move the plot along that much. Like it it didn't feel like it was necessary to include that to understand. Like we already knew he was self-sabotaging based on like the opening scene. This felt just like an extended time for they could, where they could put in some more gags. Yeah. The robbery scene was the one that really was like, felt a little out of place and it felt more like a traditional Apatow movie where there kind of has to be some hijinks. And that was the one that didn't really feel all that realistic. And then again, there was no payoff to that or any follow-up other than him talking to his friends in jail. Right. The, uh, the scene with the basketball, I kind of completely forgot about that. There, there is a, a, a level of this film that I think is kind of trying to, uh, be like a a love for the area of Staten Island in a way that certain Absolutely. other films are like, you know, we love this area in Brooklyn or whatever. I don't think it really works though. Um, it's clearly not the focus of the film. And um, so like the Kelsey character wants to make Brooklyn great or whatever, or not Brooklyn, Staten Island. Uh, but none of that really worked for me. Yeah, that's probably more of a homage to where he's from and how the people there feel. And he's like, if I'm going to do a movie entirely based in Staten Island called the King of Staten Island, I should at least throw some things in there that are kind of uh, takeaways for the local people. My friends who have seen this movie, like, that's right. We do always talk about how we can do these things. That is a joke. I would understand that the vast majority of the public wouldn't fully understand. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So you mentioned that you've seen some of uh, Pete Davidson's stand-up. Have you seen the uh, Alive in New York? Yes, I have. And um, that was one of the stand-ups that uh, convinced my wife to actually enjoy Pete Davidson. Because at that point, she'd only known him from uh, being the Ariana Grande guy. Ah, yeah. (laughs) I actually didn't love Alive from New York. But there is a uh, moment at the very end of that um, stand-up that goes straight into this film where uh, Steve Buscemi and the other firefighters are telling Scott the stories of his dad that are super un-PG. That is like an exact story from Pete Davidson's stand-up. Yeah, and I think that was actually one of the cooler moments in the film is someone who's dealing with this grief of losing a parent at such a young age where he did, where I think he was like six or seven or eight when it happened. 
all you hear is what kind of canonizes that person. And they are a saint and, you know, they, they died saving lives and they did all, they were an angel. They did all these great things. And Pete is sitting there dealing with, or his character, Scott, who is Pete is sitting there dealing with this depression thinking, all right, well, my dad was nothing like me. And then it actually helps to hear from his closest friends. Be like, no, he was just like you. He had, he was, he was, human and made errors and, you know, made mistakes throughout his life and wasn't, you know, just always this perfect human being. And that's probably a great part of like dealing with that emotional grief that he was dealing. I think what's great about that scene is that it also doesn't negate the things that he did hear about him. Like he can be both kind of this crazy dude who did coke and was kind of wild in part of his days, but he was very down to business when it was time to save lives. And I you don't really get too many characters like that in these types of films. It's usually either one or the other. And I think one type of film may have made it like uh, he was portrayed as this hero and um, everybody said that he was, but he actually was kind of like a bad dude. But it's clear that he was um, like Pete Davidson, but he wasn't he wasn't like actively a bad person or anything. And it wasn't like people were lying to Pete Davidson about his dad. I think, you know what, you're right. And that is one of the cooler aspects of the story. Uh, Maybe that's probably why they eliminated the 9-11 relation in the movie, even though that's what happened to Pete's father in real life, because that might be the main focus then be like, oh, you're talking about a 9-11 first responder who was having this crazy drug life with his friends where even though that is real, that would immediately maybe take the audience's attention away from it. Where in here it is, this is a firefighter who's a human being who has made mistakes and is an imperfect person, but is still a hero and has still done the the noble thing with his life. And that uh, how that helped Pete was very interesting to see. In a way, it almost makes it like, even if it's not true, it almost makes it more realistic that he wasn't a 9-11 firefighter. Like, I feel like that would have been a wrinkle on the story that would have taken away from the main crux of this film, which is losing uh, a parent, not just like losing a parent in 9-11, which I think is a much more specific thing. You're right, actually. <laughs> yeah, because then it would the anger losing a parent is something that a lot of people can relate to, even though it might not be losing a parent who's a firefighter. But dealing with the, the emotional loss of a parent is something that uh, people can relate to dealing with the emotional loss of losing a parent in 9-11 is not very relatable. And yeah. that you're right, that might kind of take attention away from that. Yeah. There's a uh, the opening scene when they kind of talk about his dad having died for the first time is when uh, one of Kelsey's friends is like, what's that tattoo? What's that date on your arm? Right. And he goes, oh, it's the date that my uh, dad died. And I was like, in the movie, is his dad, did his dad die on 9-11? Does he have 9-11 written on his arm? That's a little. So, <laughs> that's a little weird. I tried to. I tried to look, and I'm pretty sure they made it nine, like fourteen. Because I, I thought about that, and I was like, stop. And I think they did change it on his, even on his tattoo on his arm. So does he actually have nine eleven on his arm in real life? That I'm not sure. Okay. That I'm not sure. <laughs> I, I wanted to know if the because I know he has a ton of tattoos. I'd be interested if like all of those tattoos were real because some of them were truly terrible, which is like a running gag in the movie. Is that? He wants to be a tattoo artist and he's a terrible tattoo artist, but I don't know if those are actually Pete Davidson's tattoos. <laughs> the The tattoo scene with the young kid named Harold, I think that is just a, a great uh, scene in the film. <laughs> yeah. It, and especially what it leads to. I, I love how they're like, Hey Harry. And he's like, no, it's Harold. And I'm like, I like this kid immediately. Just the fact that like a nine-year-old stood up to him was like, this kid has structure. I like that a lot. <laughs> but uh, leading to Bill Burr's character, uh, who I think was uh, tremendous in this movie. I think Bill Burr and Marissa Tomei really crushed their roles. Um, but that led to one of the funnier scenes, which is Bill Burr essentially cursing out Marissa Tomei and Pete Davidson. Yeah, that was a really, really funny scene. And I mean, it's it's great. It, it It is just like humor and comedy, but it's also actually getting at some real things, which I think is what this movie does great. Were there any other uh, standout scenes for you? I think the Steve Buscemi scene that you mentioned. Oh, the one where they are... Um, where they're at the baseball game. Yeah. So they go to the baseball game and Bill Burr and is there with all his firefighter buddies and Pete Davidson's there because the parents are dating each other now, uh, Marissa Tomei and Bill Burr, and they're trying to make nice on their relationship. And 
Pete Davidson does kind of like a monologue about why he doesn't like firefighters. And he's there with all the firefighters. And I thought that was very interesting because that's a perspective that not only have I never heard before and probably the audience never heard before, but even the firefighters in the film kind of thought it was justified. And they, they, they didn't counter. They said, well, that's your opinion and we disagree with your opinion but I can't get mad at you for saying you don't like firefighters. And the point that he was bringing up was he believes that firefighters are selfish because if they have families, there's one day where they might not come home and their families are left to live with that grief. So they're better off just not having families. And I was like, that is a deep topic to discuss at a baseball game with friends when you're just having a couple beers and whatnot. And I thought that scene was pretty powerful. I thought it was a really great scene too. Yeah, for those exact reasons. But then there was also that joke that he made in it where he asks if the people on the Challenger explosion, like the kids of the, <laughs> the people who died on the Challenger explosion, would you ask them if they wanted to be astronauts? And they were like, I don't think she had kids. And he was like, yeah, because they died in space. That's what happens when you die in space. You don't have kids. Um, yeah, it's pretty hard to do. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it gets to the the film's really good balance of, I think, humor and, and drama, but with a specific emphasis on the drama and the really deep nuance payoff. I love uh, I love when he when Steve Buscemi counters him and he's like, well, why don't you just like take advice from the shirt you're wearing and just smile more? And Pete Davidson looks down and he's actually got like big smiles on his T-shirt. He's like, all right, that was kind of funny. Yeah. He's, like, he's, like, he's like, you kind of got me there. I'll admit this guy's good. <laughs> yeah. It, the, the film has a really good energy. And I think that whole scene, even though there is some um, conflict between the two parties, you know, there's not really like a villain in the film. Bill Burr isn't a villain. No, not at all. And everybody kind of respects each other and nobody's doing anything intentionally to uh, be a bad person, which I think is a really nice part about this film. Yeah, it's people are they're trying. Everyone is trying. It's not going great and they're getting frustrated with one another in certain aspects, but like they're putting the effort in and it's all to try to make, you know, Scott Pete's character's life better, trying to get him to take that next step emotionally. Yeah. What do you think about the guy that shows up at the firehouse that kind of essentially conveniently gets Marissa Tomei, Bill Burr and Pete Davidson back together at the end of the film? That is a, a rapper by the name of Action Bronson. Um, oh. And when he when he came on screen, that was the uh, second rapper that had been in the movie randomly. Uh, Machine Gun Kelly is the tattoo artist uh, that he uh, tries to get the mentorship with. Yeah, I think Machine Gun Kelly and uh, Pete Davidson are really good friends. I think they may be childhood friends. They, they are. And um, Machine Gun Kelly's actually acted in a couple movies uh, outside of you know his normal music role. Including Big Time Adolescence. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Well, there you go. Um, but yeah, Action Bronson, uh, who has a show on Vice, he's naturally hysterical. However, it was a little convenient to wrap this up. Um, it was, all right, well, we need to get him from the firehouse to the hospital. And then he's not getting the service he wants. How does he get it? Well, he calls Bill Burr, who's a firefighter, who will you know, get immediate attention from the nurses there. Was it convenient? Yes. Uh, but I felt like it might have been kind of necessary for where we were at that point in the movie. Yeah. And with the film already being pretty long, I don't think it's a huge deal that the ending is rushed like that. I agree. It was like a nice, just little kind of quick way to tie the bow on the end of the film. Mm -hmm. I, I enjoyed the one-liners that Action Bronson was having the entire time. <laughs> it's like, how'd you do that? He's like, it was a thorn bush and he's clearly gushing blood out of his stomach. <laughs> I tripped. I fell on yeah, something. I, tripped. Yeah. I was doing yoga and I didn't stretch. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of enjoyed Marissa Tomei's. She's very good at this like frantic energy kind of mom aunt performance where, you know, she's all frazzled and doesn't fully have it together. Um, and I really enjoyed the moment where she interrupted them fighting uh, and just kind of threw her hands up. Cause at that point she was, really trying to give her son the benefit of the doubt. And she was really enjoying her relationship with Bill Burr. And when she interrupts those two guys fighting next to the pool, it is just her being like, I'm kind of tired of all of this. Like I'm exhausted. I don't want to deal with it anymore. And I think that's something Marissa Tomei is great at. I feel like she nails that in most of her roles. Yeah. She tends to be a character that always just has 
a very good or she not not the character but her, her as an actress always tends to have a very good understanding of what the character is that she's playing i mean like even in the spider-man films when it's such a tiny part you can mm-hmm. really feel that she is in control of that character especially in this when it's a woman who hasn't dated in 20 years and you know her and bill burr flirting very funny yeah <laughs> where she just comes straight out and she's like are you flirting and he's like yes it's like Sorry, it's way more subtle than I remember it being. I didn't know what was happening. <laughs> the right before that, when Pete goes to talk to Bill Burr's wife or ex-wife, I was convinced that he was going to try and have sex with his wife. That I am right there with you. I was like, please, this will change the entire tone of the movie. I was like, I really hope that's not what's about to happen here because it'll absolutely change how I'm viewing this movie. And the fact that it was just, you know, he was just trying to get dirt on him was way better. But I I saw your note. I was completely convinced of the same thing. <laughs> yeah. I, I also love just his relationship with Bill Burr's kids. Uh, I think those kids are absolutely adorable. And the way that Pete Davidson interacts with them is so sweet. It is really adorable. Yep. And it kind of feeds to the film's uh, just kind of deceptive sweetness. Yes. When he, when he, the first time when he's walking them to school and... He asks uh, the son, Harold, like, oh, what are you into? And he says, I like to make up superheroes. And then he gives him like an honest critique of the superhero he invented. Yeah. <laughs> like, all right, he's meeting him on his level. You know, he's having a real conversation. And then uh, he asks the daughter to sing. And he, he goes, actually, that was really good. And at that point, he'd kind of established that he would tell her the truth. And he's like, no, that was really good. You're a pretty good singer. <laughs> and then he has to mix the paints in the classroom and the teacher's just like, go do it. And he's like, no. He's like, yeah, you're going to do it. <laughs> yeah. it's. I mean, I, I really like that it just kind of peels away your expectations of what this character is. I think especially mm-hmm. when you see the poster for this film, which is him shirtless with all his tattoos, which gives off a, an energy for better or for worse. Mm-hmm. Um, and the character is actually much deeper than that. And I think in his other film, The Big Time Adolescence, that Zeke character that he plays is kind of actively harmful to the ones around him. And in this film, he's not really, um, he's not like a slacker. He's just clearly screwed up from some emotional trauma, but he's actually a good person and actually a person that's quite talented, cares about the people that surround him. So I really liked that seeing that difference in uh, a Pete Davidson character. That's it. I really enjoy how you put that. Uh, I think that's right on the button. He doesn't actively harm anyone. It is they're kind of in his wake as he's more self-sabotaging himself. And so his mother and his sister and his friends are kind of there while he is hurting himself. But he's not going out of his way to make their lives more difficult. Yeah, completely agree. But yeah, I mean, overall, I think it's a it's a really good performance in a film that even if it does meander a little bit, I, I really enjoyed it. And I definitely think it's worth a watch, um, but it's not one that you'd need to spend nineteen ninety nine on. So like watching this in six months or whatever, when it goes on to one of 12 streaming services might be the move. Yeah, not not everyone is um, a cinephile like myself who is just dying for content at this point. You can right. absolutely <laughs> wait to rent this. Yeah, but definitely worth watching. Okay, so let's move on to our point two section where we talk about some of the other stuff that we've been watching. James, what have you been watching? So what I've been watching is other than reaching kind of the end of the internet when it comes to streaming services, <laughs> um, I've at this point had to try to find something that me and my quarantine partner, that is my wife, uh, can both enjoy. And so it's either been completely trash, like reality TV. Um, one of them being is we are addicted to 90 day fiance, which if you haven't seen it, I would (laughs) highly suggest watching it, uh, because it is trash, but it is such like a deep dive and personal view of people's relationships. And it's super entertaining. Have you seen what is the one that was a huge Netflix thing? Love is blind. Of course. Of course. I've seen love is blind. (laughs) How does it go right around? It is. So what I would say is in love and love is blind. There is the kind of like gimmick of these people are getting engaged despite never actually seeing each other and only speaking for a few weeks. Mm -hmm. When it comes to 90 day fiance, it is like, these are uh, Americans who are marrying immigrants and you see like the in-depth 
realization of like some of these people have really good relationships and it's just a tough situation they're trying to figure out. Some of these people have horrific relationships and they're just desperate for love. And you're like, why are you doing this? Like, you don't need to do these things. You can still date. Um, And then other people are just full-blown idiots. And those are the ones that are very entertaining to watch. Um, But you get the whole gamut of like people trying to tough it out to people you're like, I can't believe these people are functioning members of our society. (laughs) Outside of that, though, a recent positive thing that uh, me and the wifey had watched is we were just kind of discussing... Well, what is like your favorite animated movies of all time? And we just were kind of bouncing off of each other, going back and forth. And then I just Googled after we had a couple of answers that we both agreed on. And one of the ones that popped up is like one of the highest rated ones uh, was Inside Out. Oh, and I absolutely that. love that film. I sobbed like a baby. Yeah, it was so good. I could not like I could not recommend it enough. It was so impressive. And so layered for a kid's movie that we were puddles halfway through. Bing bong. Yeah. Bing, uh, what's the bing bong? Yep. And when Goofball Island fell, it was like a deep sigh in my house. And like immediately we're like, oh my God, that's Goofball Island. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is a film that, um, I mean, I talk up as much as I can whenever I get a chance to talk about it. Just because I saw it at a point in time when there, it was some transition in my life. I, I guess it was, you know, the second or maybe third year of college mm-hmm. um, when it first came out and watching it and just really trying to grapple with my own understanding of what it's like to lose parts of yourself as you grow older and have to let things go and how emotions can be complex. But I mean, I guess I'm kind of spoiling Inside Out, so spoilers for Inside Out. But um <laughs> Kind of just like how emotions can be complex and how you can be both happy and sad at something. And it's just a beautiful message. I'm getting goosebumps just talking about it. You, I was oh. just going to say you explaining that just gave me chills. And I watched the movie like a week ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a fantastic movie. It was, um, I think we were about 10 minutes in before we both looked at each other. And we're like, oh, I see where this is going. Oh, yep. Going to make us cry. Absolutely no, this movie's going to make us cry. <laughs> <laughs> the thing I love about it too is that what the kid is dealing with is really not all that traumatic or, you know, I mean, like in the King of Staten Island, you have a parent who's has died. And I think a lot of people have parents who have died and can relate to that. But Inside Out does not take something quite as traumatic. It's just something relatively simple in this kid's life and showing that, you know, it's okay to have emotions about these things that aren't necessarily these big cinematic, um, dealings with grief and things like that. I, I think that's another great part about the film. And a classic Disney move in these uh, children's movies is to have a parent die. Yeah. And because they know that emotionally it will affect the entire viewing audience. And it usually happens in like the first 10 minutes of the film. And so we went into think we went into watching that being like, uh, are they going to kill one of these parents? And I was so happy <laughs> that that was not one of the, one of the points of the movie. Yeah. Uh, but it was awesome and super um, effective in the message it was getting across. And you explained it really well. I'm glad you got to see that. That's I, I always love hearing people talk about that movie. Is there anything else that you watched that you want to point out? I did see uh, Defy Bloods. Uh, I did listen to your review of it. And I was so thoroughly impressed with the uh, lead actor. What is his name? Delroy Lindo. Delroy Lindo. I think he stole the show. I thought his monologue was uh, fantastic. Um, I don't think the movie was as good as some of other Spike Lee's movies, but I thought that that character and that performance was unbelievable. Yeah, that's another one that is on the long side and feels like it could be trimmed down a bit for sure. Absolutely. (laughs) So one of the films that I've watched recently, I actually haven't been watching things too much lately uh, other than just like, you know, TV shows that I've seen six times already, but One of the films that I checked out, just uh, hearing good things about it, was The Invitation. Each and every one of us is on a journey. And we feel that it's important to be on that journey with the people you love. (laughs) 
So I saw that. I had not watched it um, because my quarantine partner hates scary movies, but I love scary movies. So I'm excited to hear your uh, your review here. Yeah. So this is directed by Karen Kusama. Uh, it stars discount Tom Hardy, Logan Marshall Green, <laughs> and then some people that I don't recognize, uh, Tammy Blanchard, but this guy named Mikael Huisemann, who I think is a Dutch or Belgian guy. And he's actually Dario from Game of Thrones, the second Dario. Okay, the one who was on the show for a little longer. Yeah, yeah. Got it. But okay. so, yeah, this is, it, it's it's a horror film a little bit, but it's more of thriller. Uh, I bet you could talk her into, you know, maybe trick her into watching it by being like, it's more of a personal <laughs> drama. Um, <laughs> but Logan Marshall Green, he stars as Will. He's invited to a dinner party at his ex-wife's house. Uh, the ex-wife kind of had two years of radio silence following the separation that they had after losing their child. And so right when he and his current partner show up at this house, you know that there's instantly something wrong. Um, There's this air of uncertainty. It kind of feels like there's just something not quite right about the motivations of everybody and kind of the ambiance of the movie. But part of that is because you are seeing most of the film from this guy's perspective, and he's not the most reliable character. He's dealing with grief. He's very, very depressed because of the loss of a child. Um, uh, You're always questioning what's real or what's kind of being warped by his own paranoia and past traumas and everything. So each of the characters, most motivations are called into question. And it's one of those films that kind of has you guessing and changing your mind throughout about what you should believe and uh, who you're kind of rooting for at each given moment. So because of that, the film just feels like this really great exercise of slow tension building until essentially the third act of the film. And I think one of the problems with a lot of films like this is that, you know, you're excited, you're waiting for the other shoe to drop, uh, you're getting more and more wound up, and then it just doesn't pay off in the way that uh, you kind of the movie promises. But I think this film does Hopefully that doesn't oversell the film or anything, but I think that the the ending of the film is really cool, really interesting. I did not really see it coming. The journey along the way, though, is still well told and it's smartly crafted. All the performances are good and each of the characters kind of has their own part to play. Uh, so it doesn't feel like they're just, you know, people in a horror movie, for example, that are kind of just there to die or something like that. So I would definitely check this one out. Yeah, you sold me on that. That's like everything I look for in a movie. So that is, ex- I couldn't be more in. I'm excited to watch it. Yeah, it is. It is such just a film that like, it feels like it's made to be watched by somebody who just likes thrillers. Like, it's just so well crafted. I can't recommend it uh, highly enough. Is that how you'd I say mean, that? And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's unfortunate for Logan Marshall Green that he looks exactly like Tom Hardy because I've made that ex- mistake actually on myself. Yeah. Uh, when, <laughs> with Upgrade, I was like, oh, wow, Tom Hardy's in this. And like, nope, that's not him. I was like, oh, OK, well, that's unfortunate. Yeah. I hope he's in a couple more things so that I can start kind of teasing him apart from Tom Hardy that he does mm-hmm. not he doesn't really do Tom Hardy things. So I, I do think it's kind of mean to call him discount Tom Hardy because he is a, quite a good actor. And I think both this film and Upgrade are really good films. Yes. Um, so he's also has like a bit part in Spider-Man Homecoming. I thought he was fine in that. But for a second, when you watch that movie, you're like, that guy looks a lot like Tom Hardy. <laughs> they would not put him as like a grunt role. <laughs> I think he's uh, the in Prometheus. I think he's like the first guy who, uh, spoiler alert, but it's like 10 minutes into the movie. I think he's like the first person who dies in the Prometheus movies. Oh, I didn't even realize that. I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. But anyways, uh, check them out in uh, The Invitation. It's on Netflix. So And go in knowing nothing other than what I said. Like, don't don't even look at the synopsis of this movie because I feel like it ruins a little bit of what you think is going on. Yeah, you sold me on it. I can't wait to watch it. Awesome. So this has been our review of The King of Staten Island. James, thank you so much for joining me today. This was Thank you awesome. for having me. Yeah, I had a blast. I really appreciated it. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. Um, is there anything specific that you'd like to plug here? Yeah, I will plug uh, my own movie podcast here. I do it with a handful of other uh, folks. It is uh, on Twitter. We are Munson's at Movies. And on Instagram, we are Munson's at the Movies. We do a 
deep dive into the careers of uh, individual actors each episode. And they're chosen at random. So there's going to be some stars and there's going to be some people who are like, I don't even know who that is. <laughs> Who's the like most ambiguous person that you've... Uh, the, the most so the most recent one that we've just done was Natasha Leone, um, okay. who is the star of Russian Doll, um, and then I would say outside of her would be uh, Chris O'Dowd, who is the cop boyfriend in Bridesmaids. Yep. I would say those are probably the two most uh, lesser known actors that we've done. Awesome! I will provide the links to all of those in the show notes. Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you. The intro music for this episode is a piece called Work by Kevin McLeod, and you can find more of his work at Incompetech.com. If you'd like to keep up with this podcast and find out when we release new episodes, you can follow us on Twitter at MovieMarapod or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash MovieMarapod. That's Movie, M-A-R-A, pod. And you can always reach out to us at our email, MovieMarathonersPod at gmail.com. You can find more episodes of this podcast on Podbean at MovieMarathoners.Podbean.com. And we are also on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, and Spotify. So please subscribe or write a review if you like what we're doing. And any feedback you have to help improve the podcast is always appreciated. So thank you all for listening. And we hope you'll join us again next time when I am joined by the Media Music Podcast crew to talk about the Hamilton musical coming to Disney+, Plus, as well as the new Netflix film about Eurovision. So stay tuned for that. Until then, bye. Hello everyone, my name is Matt Neglia, and I am the host of the Next Best Picture podcast, part of the Film Entertainment Awards website, nextbestpicture.com. On our show, we explore all year long what is possibly going to win Best Picture at the Oscars. We do this by conducting interviews with people within the film industry, holding weekly reviews of the latest theatrical releases, and on our main show, where we dive into various different topics, answer your fan questions, and also do our best to explore Oscar history's past in hopes that it will tell us something new for this upcoming award season race. We hope that you will join us on all of the various podcasting networks. We look forward to seeing you over at nextbestpicture.com. Music